Paul is in a Roman prison. Chains dangle from his wrists as he writes of his freedom in Christ. He's outfitted in prison stripes as he pens about the righteousness he wears. A string of Roman numerals are stitched across his shirt while he records his innumerable blessings in Christ. You see, rather than see himself in prison, Paul chooses to see himself in Christ. And you know, this is the choice we make. Do we get lost in our physical surroundings or do we stay focused on our spiritual blessings? Hey, in your heart of hearts, where do you abide? Are you in pain this morning or are you in Christ? Are you in hock or are you in Christ? Are you in somebody's hot seat or are you in Christ? Are you in fear this morning or are you in Christ? Well, chapter 3 begins, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul is in Christ. He belongs to Jesus. He could have said he was the prisoner of Rome. That was true in a sense. Or the prisoner of Caesar or the prisoner of the Jews. But here he says that he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Did you know that a Christian is never a victim of circumstance? Never. God is sovereign. Nothing is able to get to me or you that doesn't first pass through him. If you belong to Jesus, did somebody say amen? Amen. Yeah. If you belong to Jesus, he has a plan for you. Don't interpret disappointment as a derailment of that plan. Wherever you are, no matter the situation, he has purposes for you. Paul writes of himself as a prisoner of Christ. And why was Paul in prison? Well, he tells us, for you Gentiles. He was in prison for us. He had stood up for a pig-eating, bacon-loving, pork-chop-munching Gentiles like you and me. In the face of Jewish prejudice and legalism, Paul preached grace for every race. God isn't just for the well-bred. His blessings come apart from Jewish law. Paul put God and all of his goodness within the reach of the religious outcast. You know, today, every time I savor a bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich or eat a pulled pork plate, I taste the debt of gratitude that I owe the Apostle Paul. He came to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Well, Paul spent two years in Ephesus. It's funny that in verse 2, he asks if they've heard of his ministry. He says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Of course they'd heard of Paul. Perhaps Paul is really asking them, did you really understand the implications of this grace I brought to you? And if he were writing to us, I'm sure he'd ask us the same. Do we? You know, when you think of a dispensation of grace, as Paul puts it, think of a distributorship. You know, the Jews knew of God's grace, so God sent Paul to distribute salvation to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. You know, God is like that. God is an entrepreneur. He's not afraid of branching out and going where things have never gone before and opening new channels of distribution for His amazing grace. He wants to move out into all segments of the market, every age and every race and every language and every culture. I guess when it comes to marketing and distribution, no one's better at it than McDonald's. Did you know one of the busiest McDonald's in the world sits 
down the street from the Kremlin in Moscow. It serves 40,000 people a day. At one time, a new McDonald's opened up somewhere in the world every four hours. Today, there are over 36,000 McDonald's stores in 101 different countries. And as Christians, we should be as effective distributing the gospel as McDonald's is in distributing Big Macs. Hey, perhaps your office has never had a strong witness for Jesus. Maybe the same could be said for your tennis team or for your neighborhood or for your hunting club. You know, God has given you the distribution rights in that new market. Get busy, friend. It's been said there's enough bread of life to supply the whole world, but are there enough volunteers to distribute it? Well, Paul continues talking about his dispensation of grace. How that by revelation, he, that is Christ, made known to me the mystery. As I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now notice here, Paul refers to the gospel of grace as a mystery. You know, usually when we hear the word mystery, we think of an Agatha Christie or a Sherlock Holmes novel. A suspense-filled, smoking gun, whodunit kind of thriller. But that's not what Paul means when he uses this term mystery. You see, a biblical mystery is simply a truth that's known only to God. It's a sacred secret. And the great mystery in the Old Testament was how would God save the Gentiles, the non-Jews? You see, there were Old Testament prophecies that predicted the Gentile salvation, but it remained unclear to everyone but God as to how this would happen. And the privilege of explaining this great mystery was finally given to Paul. And Paul preached that it was through Christ that God would bring together both Jews and non-Jews as one new people group, the church. When Paul first preached the gospel of Jesus to Gentiles, he was resolving an age-old mystery. You know, I'm afraid one of the reasons that folks today take the gospel and God's grace for granted is that we no longer see it as a mystery. You know, when we first heard the gospel, When we first grasped its implications, it was an unexpected discovery. We were overwhelmed by the lavishness of God's generosity. God did that for me? We were surprised by a love that we didn't deserve. But lose the wonder, lose the amazement of it. And what was once an unexpected discovery soon becomes a worn out doctrine. If the gospel of grace has gotten boring to you, I think it's time for you to see it again as a mystery. You know, take your marriage, for example. You know, after a few years, you and your spouse become familiar territory. And thus, to keep your love fresh, you have to create some mystique. Do you not? You have to approach each other from a different angle. He should go out and splurge on an evening out. Do something different. She should impress him with a new outfit. Risk dining at a new restaurant. 
somewhere other than the McDonald's, I would suggest. Realize there are dimensions of your spouse's personality yet to be discovered. There's some mystique here, puzzles you've yet to figure out. Here's my point. The way to beat boredom is by reintroducing into the relationship some mystery. And the same is true in our relationship with God. The gospel is a mystery in a sense. You know, Earl Weaver, the former manager of the Baltimore Orioles, once said, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And I think that's true. Especially when it comes to the Bible and God's grace. There's always more than we realized. So forget the fact that you've read the Bible your whole life. Pick it up afresh and look for something new. It's there, I promise you. Focus on reading the passage before you as if you've never read it before. And God will surprise you with some mystery. Mystery revealed. Well, God is speaking of the gospel here in verse 7. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. Given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. For Paul, sharing the gospel was not a duty. It was an honor he didn't deserve. The Apostle Paul was Christianity's greatest minister, and yet he considered himself less than the least of the saints. You know, before he dispensed grace, he had received grace, and now he calls, God has called him to share its secret. You know, for me, there's only one thing more fun than keeping a secret, and that's spilling the beans. You know, I'm the one person in the family most prone to blow the secret. I'm always the last one to get told the secret. They know I'll spill it as soon as I learn it. And Paul had the honor of traveling the world, letting the cat out of the bag, telling the Gentiles of God's amazing grace. Paul was having a ball, and we can join in the fun, friends. Notice how Paul describes his ministry. He says, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He refers to the blessings of Jesus as unsearchable or literally untraceable. It's not man who finds God. It's God who initiates this love relationship we've entered into. It's God who reveals himself to us. Left to ourselves without his word, we're in the dark. Verse 9, it was Paul's privilege to preach and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, notice this, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, God's manifold, or literally his multifaceted wisdom, is now revealed in his church. Even the angels. Think of this. The principalities and powers in heavenly places. The angels are learning what God is up to in the world by looking at us, the church. How Jesus forgives, and how he saves, and how he blesses. And how he unites diverse people is a lesson to the angels. And it's being played out in his church. Blows their minds to see what God is doing in us. And this is why a healthy church is so vital. The angels look at this church to see what's going on. To understand God's character. 
We are the prism through which the inhabitants of both this world and the spirit world behold God's manifold wisdom. And then verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And here's another blessing that's ours in Christ. Access. Access to God. This is what the Old Testament saints knew nothing about. No one but the Hebrew high priest, and only once a year, was allowed into God's presence. But in Christ Jesus, you and I, all of us, can come boldly to God's throne for the help that we need. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul doesn't want his imprisonment to discourage the Ephesians. And this is why he's praying for them. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And his first request is that they may be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Notice this. Paul doesn't pray for their outer man. He prays for their inner man, their spirit. You know, when we pray for our friends, we usually focus on their external status. And that's okay. Pray for the new job. Pray for an increase in salary. Pray for all that stuff if you want. But what we really need to direct our prayers toward is the inner man, their spiritual health. The outer man's destined to wither and die anyway. There's no fountain of youth in this life. But the inner person, we can pray for the inner person and see results. For the inner person of every man is like a rechargeable battery. Did you know you can plug into God and he'll re-energize you spiritually? He will. And thus, that's how Paul prays, that they would be strengthened with might by God's Spirit in the inner man. And then he adds, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul wants us to allow Jesus to dwell. That is, to literally make himself at home in our hearts. Friends, Jesus is king. Thus, wherever he moves in, he starts redecorating. Now, ladies, you know this. You move into a new house. You're not content with the way it is. What do you start doing? You redecorate. You change things. You bring in your furniture. You're going to change the whole thing. Why, Why would Jesus be any different? He moves into your heart, and trust me, he's going to start redecorating. He's going to get rid of those old draperies and those old attitudes and those moldy furniture you've been tolerating for all this time. He's going to get rid of all that stuff. He's going to remove the old fixtures. And he's going to install his stuff, new stuff. Wherever Jesus dwells, he's the king of the castle. And here Paul prays that the Ephesians will give the Lord full control of their hearts to dwell in them through faith. That they'll trust him enough to make the changes that he thinks are best for their lives. And in verse 17 That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a verse. Man, it's packed with meaning. Paul asked God to enlarge their spiritual capacity and help them grasp the full volume 
of God's love for them. Any chocolate lovers in the room? Anybody love chocolate? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought so. Once it was a guy, he jumped into a vat of sweet, delicious chocolate. And guess what he prayed? Just as he jumped, guess what he prayed? Lord, make my capacity equal to my opportunity. <laughs> I can understand that. Guys, God's love is like a vat of chocolate. You can take in all you want. Your only limitation is your appetite. And so Paul prays that God will expand their hearts, expand their capacity, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Don't they? You want the same for your life? Pray and ask that God will give you the ability to assimilate his love. Paul closes his prayer with a praise, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Imagine, God not only is able to meet every need we bring to him, he's able to do above all that we ask or think. His grace is always greater than our needs. Never forget, God can do exceedingly abundantly. Now Paul begins chapter 4, and again he mentions his incarceration. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. You know, I've heard it said, Jesus promised three things to his disciples. First, that they would be ridiculously happy. Second, that they would be completely fearless. And third, that they would be in constant trouble. And that was true. And that was Paul. He was blessed in Christ, and he was troubled in this world. I've been to the cave, by the way, in Rome. A small little cave that Paul occupied in the heart of the city. The Marmotine Prison. It's a small subterranean holding cell. And I've envisioned, when I was there, I envisioned Paul pacing back and forth, back and forth in that cell. He was worried, but not about his imprisonment. It's not where he walks that concerns him. It's how he walks. For he writes to these Ephesians, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, in Ephesians 1 through 3, the emphasis was on where we sit, that we sit in heavenly places in Christ. But now that we're somebody in Christ Jesus, now that we have such privileges, we should live like it. And in chapter 4, Paul's emphasis shifts to how we walk. We should walk worthy of our calling. You see, membership in God's family is not only a privilege, it's a responsibility. The little pint-sized princess growing up in Buckingham Palace, little Victoria, she was sheltered from the fact that she was next in line to be England's monarch. Her handlers didn't want to spoil the future queen. But one day, Victoria saw in the genealogical records of the royal family that she was next in line to the throne. Well, initially, Victoria was overcome with emotion. But once she had gained her composure, the future queen, she looked at her tutor and she said, then I must be good. And you see, this is the reaction that Paul hopes hits us 
that in Christ we have a high calling. President or prime minister or premier pale in comparison to being a Christian. In light of our calling, we too must be good. And the first observation that Paul makes about our high calling is that it requires a lowly walk. In verse 2, Paul says that we should walk with all lowliness or with humility. Doug Barfield was the former football coach for the Auburn Tigers. Don't really like Auburn too much, but um, what he said made sense. He kept a plaque on his desk which read, There are no limits to how much can be accomplished if no one cares who gets the credit. Don't you like that? There's no limits to how much can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. The same is true in the church. That's why we all should walk in humility. And also in gentleness. You know, when you look around at the people in your life, imagine them with stickers stuck all over them that read, Fragile, handle with care. Because it's true, we're all fragile. We, we need to be sensitive and tender and gentle toward one another. Let's also walk with long-suffering or with patience. And here's another way to walk, bearing with one another in love. We need to put up with each other's quirks and idiosyncrasies. Because we all have them, don't we? Be honest. You're all a little quirky. It's been said, Christian discipleship is teaching the intolerant to tolerate the intolerable. <laughs> Since people get down, let's walk lowly and help lift them up. Since they're fragile, let's be gentle toward them. Since they take time, let's be patient. And since everyone is just a little bit weird, let's bear with each other in love. And then verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Realize, the unity of the Spirit is a gift from God. It's the spiritual affinity that exists among all true believers. But understand what it is not. The unity of Spirit is not the unity of faith. We're not all going to agree on every aspect of doctrine. Neither is it the unity of format. We can enjoy different kinds of worship styles and worship music. And it's not the unity of friendship. We can have spiritual unity and not necessarily be close friends. No, the unity of the Spirit doesn't abolish our differences. Rather, it creates a bond, a commonality that is greater than our differences. And we can't manufacture this kind of unity. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But once we've received it, then we can endeavor to keep it. The word endeavor means to aggressively and actively do whatever it takes to preserve our unity. See, the Spirit of God creates a bond of peace between us. But it can be broken if we don't protect it. Misunderstandings, hurt feelings, jealousies. Threaten the unity of the Spirit. You know, once a visitor to an insane asylum, he was astonished to see only three guards in charge of hundreds of dangerous patients. The visitor asked one of the guards, says, aren't you afraid these people will overpower you and escape? The guard replied, no, lunatics never unite. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, God has created a wonderful family here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. I think it's wonderful. You can sense the unity of the Spirit when you walk into the doors of this church. But now it's up to us to walk in lowliness and gentleness and patience toward one another and tolerance toward one another, bearing each other's burdens. Differences will arise, but we all need to work through them and endeavor to stay together and maintain this unity. And there's several other reasons that we should be so concerned about our unity. Verse 4, there's one body. When God looks down on Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, He sees not us as individual believers, but as one body, the body of Christ, and one spirit. The same spirit that dwells in you dwells in me. There's one spirit who unites us all. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. In other words, there's only one heaven. There's not a Baptist heaven. And a Methodist heaven. And a Presbyterian heaven. There's not even a Calvary Chapel heaven. There's only one heaven. Only one hope of our calling. And one Lord. We say yes sir to the same person. His name is Jesus. Our goal is to please and glorify Jesus. And one faith. In other words, there's one true body of belief. Understand, theology isn't arbitrary or ambiguous. Hey, somebody is right and somebody is wrong. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. We're not all right. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. There's only one faith, we're told, and there's one baptism. When a person comes to Christ, they're baptized into the body of Christ, not a particular church. And this is why it's arrogant and bigoted for one church not to accept another church's baptism. You hear that from time to time. Well, there's only one baptism. And finally, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We know for sure Paul was a southerner there. In you all. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed not only for our orthodoxy, but for our unity. He prayed for it that night and he paid for it the next day. And the least we can do is endeavor to keep it intact. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That means God floods us with grace. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And part of his grace toward us are spiritual gifts. Jesus is like a conquering general who's taken his foe captive. But he's done so to adorn them with amazing gifts. He explains this in verse 9. He says, now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now here Paul lays out for us Jesus' itinerary between his death and his resurrection. What did his spirit do during those three days? Here we're told that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth, lower than the valleys. Lower than the crust, lower than the mantle, lower than the core, lower spiritually. That takes you all the way to Hades. And Luke 16 describes this place called Hades, which is 
apparently located at the center of the earth in a spiritual dimension. Hades, you see, according to Jesus, was a duplex. This was the place where people died they went to before the coming of Christ. Hades was a duplex. It was divided into two halves. There was a good side of the duplex. There was a bad side of the duplex. It was separated by a huge gulf. Those who died believing God's promises went to paradise, the good side of Hades, whereas the unbelievers went to the place of torment, the bad side of Hades. Now in the Old Testament, before the work of Christ on the cross, the door to the presence of God was closed. The blood sacrifices covered man's sin, but didn't erase them. Hades served as the holding tank for heaven until Jesus, the true Lamb of God, would come and offer the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, sin's permanent solution. As soon as Jesus conquered sin, he descended into Hades, and he gathered up all of the Old Testament believers who had trusted in God's salvation. They became his captives in a sense. And General Jesus led those captives into the halls of heaven. He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men To his followers left on earth, he's given spiritual gifts to build up his church. Today, when a believer dies, he no longer goes to Hades. He or she follows Jesus straight into God's presence. For as Paul told the Corinthians, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And Jesus is still giving spiritual gifts. Four of these spiritual gifts are given to people with unique spiritual callings. We read, and he himself gave some to be apostles. Of course, the original 12 apostles had a unique calling, but there were other apostles mentioned in the New Testament. The word literally means sent out one. I believe a missionary who crosses cultures with the gospel or who breaks new ground and plants churches where there were none can be called an apostle. There are some prophets. These are people that God uses to speak special instruction at specific times. Paul also mentions some evangelists. This is a person effective, particularly effective at leading sinners to Jesus. We're all called to be witnesses, aren't we? But not everyone's an evangelist. And then there are some pastors and teachers. The word pastor is Latin for shepherd. And a pastor is a spiritual shepherd who nurtures and cares For God's flock, shepherds retrieve strays and men bruises and protect the sheep from wild animals and find suitable pasture. And most importantly, they feed their sheep, which means that a pastor must also be a gifted teacher. That's why pastors and teachers here go hand in hand. And the ultimate purpose of these gifts is for the equipping of the saints For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In other words, the pastor's job isn't to do all the witnessing and all the visiting and all the counseling. My job is to equip you to minister to people. You know, in most churches, there's the laity. And then there's the the pastors. There's the ministers. There's the laity and there's the ministers. That means that most everybody lays around. And a few people do the ministry. That's not the way it should be. God wants every member a minister. 
You know, I grew up in a church where every week the pastor preached a message on salvation. The problem was that 95% of the congregation was already saved. He ended up speaking to 5% while ignoring the vast majority. And as a result, no one grew. No one became bolder and stronger and more equipped to impact people for Jesus. But what if a pastor feeds his flock the meat of God's word and builds up their faith? Then eventually, rather than one person preaching on Sundays at church, you end up with hundreds of people preaching the gospel throughout the week in hundreds of different places. That's a lot better idea. And that's our goal here at Calvary Chapel. We believe healthy sheep reproduce. Thus, we want you to grow in your faith and be built up and equipped for the ministry so that you can bring Jesus to the world in which you live. It's the pastor's job to equip the saints, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And notice how Paul phrases this, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Realize that when it comes to the unity of the faith, I'm not moving towards you and you're not moving toward me. We are all coming toward God. See, evidently, none of us have arrived. No one has a flawless doctrine or a monopoly on the truth. We're all growing. We're all leaning and we're all moving toward Jesus. It's the unity of the faith into a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the goal of Christian growth, to be as fully like Jesus as we possibly can. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And boy, does this ever describe today's church. For when believers aren't taught the Bible, they don't know what to believe. And so they end up vulnerable to every smooth-sounding doctrine that blows through the church. This is why we teach the Bible here verse by verse, chapter by chapter, in a systematic way. Because we want you to truly know what this book says. This is life. This is the bread. This is how you can discern right from wrong, true from false, by learning this book. By doing what we're doing this morning. Well, in contrast to teaching that's described as trickery and cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting, Paul tells us in verse 15, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that is Christ. In other words, when a person teaches the truth of God in the love of God, believers grow and become more like Jesus. Paul mentions Christ who is the head of the church, from whom the whole body Joined and knit together by which every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Hey, what is Jesus up to today? Jesus is a bodybuilder. He is. He's building up his body one believer at a time. We all have a place and everyone, everyone's growth in the body is crucial. Well, verse 17 continues to tell us how we can walk worthy of our calling. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. 
It's interesting, several years ago, I read where Skidmore College did some research that showed how people walk reflect their personality, that different walks reflect different personality traits. A waddle means a person is independent. A drag, when they drag their feet, kind of shows that they're frustrated. A stride indicates confidence. When they walk on their tiptoes, that's a sign of insecurity. A shuffle belongs to a lazy person. In other words, you can tell a lot about a person by how they walk. And I think Paul would agree. Both believers and unbelievers have a distinctive way that they walk. And they carry themselves. And Paul begins by describing to us how the pagans walk. In verse 17, they walk in the futility of their mind. Or literally, they're empty-headed. They don't think about the consequences of their actions. And here's why. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Without Christ, they're cut off from God's light. They live their lives in spiritual darkness. And thus, they're stumbling in the night. And how do people get cut off from God? He says, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. They don't have to become, they don't have to become ignorant. In other words, they're born ignorant of God and of God's truth. Only when we're born again does the light come on. And then he continues to speak of the person separated from God, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. In other words, when you're constantly resisting God, you deaden your conscience, and you grow numb to truth and morality. You'll try anything to end your emptiness. I like how C.S. Lewis once described the world without Christ. He called it a land where it's winter all year long, but never Christmas. In other words, it's a dark and lonely world you live in, When you're dead to your sin and living in darkness. In contrast, verse 20 tells us to dress for success, spiritual success that is. It says, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Hey, if you're running a race, you want to dress for success. You want to wear lightweight clothes and sturdy shoes. And if you're running a spiritual race, it's also necessary that you wear the appropriate attire. And Paul tells us here, we need to put off certain attitudes and put on certain attitudes. He says, strip off any selfish attitudes Stop rehearsing old thoughts. Ditch your sinful behaviors. You need to put off the junk that characterized your life before you came to Christ. And then you need to put on a new attitude. Renew your thoughts. Harmonize them with God's word. Learn to see yourself and all of life from God's perspective. In other words, the Christian life is all about putting off and putting on. And here's what this looks like. The next few verses list some examples of the changes that you'll make when you begin to put off and put on. Therefore, putting away lying. 
Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Christians should be truth tellers. Put away lying. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now understand this. It's not always wrong to be angry. There's a lot in this world that shall rile your anger. Just don't let your anger lead you into sin. I read where the average person drives 20 miles per hour faster when he or she is angry. Anger is a powerful force. Get control of it before it takes control of you. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, keep short accounts. If you have a conflict with a friend or with your spouse, deal with it as quickly as possible. Verse 27, nor give place to the devil. In other words, don't give the devil an opportunity to tempt you. Often I hear people say, well, I got this terrible problem with pornography. Every time I log on to the internet. Well, what are you doing logging on to the internet? Man, every time I go into a bar, I get drunk. Come on, man. If you're serious about walking with God, then stop walking headfirst into temptation. He says, let him who stole steal no longer. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Here's the effect that Jesus has on a person. He doesn't just stop him from stealing, but now he encourages him to be generous. The thief now becomes a generous giver. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Whenever I go somewhere else to speak, it doesn't take my audience long to identify where I'm from. Don't understand that. Some people say I have a southern accent. Y'all know better than that. But likewise, a Christian should be identified by what comes out of his or her mouth. And not just that we refrain from gossip or profanity, but that grace colors our speech. Do your words build up or do they tear down? And then verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, quenching the Spirit avoids doing what the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. Whereas grieving the Spirit is the opposite. It's doing what God told you not to do. And we should never quench or grieve the Holy Spirit, but cooperate with Him. And then chapter 4 closes. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And there would be no problem if the verse ended here. Oh, we should forgive one another. We'd all go out real happy. Nobody would be challenged. But look at Paul's qualifier. Just as God in Christ forgave you. That ups the ante, doesn't it? We should forgive one another as fully and as freely as Jesus has forgiven us. Two husbands, they were talking one day. One says to the other, says to his buddy, he says, man, when my wife is mad, she gets historical. His friend corrected him. He said, you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. She dredges up the past. Hey, Jesus forgives and he forgets. 
Jesus holds no grudges. Let's let us forgive each other the way Christ has forgiven us. And if you've never been forgiven by Jesus, please hear, hear what I have to say. It's easy. It's simple. He loves you. He's done the work for you. Forgiveness is free. It's yours for the taking. You've just got to come with a humble heart. You've got a desire to let him take control of your life. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll wash you clean. He'll make you brand new. And if you need that in your life today, after the service today, come, come forward. We're going to have some folks.